I think that one of the most common misconceptions is that like a company is kind of like, it is such a multifaceted thing. It's kind of like, if you ask somebody, how do you live a good life? The question, like nobody can answer that question. People have to like, what life are you to live? Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. And in this episode, I speak with Hampus Jacobson. Hampus is a venture capitalist, serial entrepreneur, and currently is a general partner at Pale Blue Dot. He blogs at hajak.se. That's H-A-J-A-K dot S-E. And we'll be talking about stoicism, entrepreneurship, identity, how to concretely form habits using writing as a test case, and some of the largest misconceptions people have about starting a company. This is a practical discussion. It centers on how to use stoicism as a tool to accomplish your goals. You'll get a number of tactics you can use to solve problems, build habits, and get a sense of how a leading investor and entrepreneur thinks. Here is our conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Of course. Uh, great to be here. I actually do think that it's great that people are doing more and more podcasts about stoicism because it feels like it's one of those things where when I started reading about it, that, reading on it, it was really, really hard to find good content. So I'm, re- I'm super, super right you're doing this. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Let's start with this broad question. What is stoicism to you? I think that it's very hard to say it in a way that doesn't sound like you don't care about other people. Honestly, I think that for me, I think that it is that I think we are all running around this world and trying to figure out what we are thinking ourselves, but then we get extremely affected by what other people are thinking about us. So I think it's it's very rare to meet people that are saying, I don't really care what the other people are saying. And the problem is that stoicism is kind of the practice of trying to say, care less what other people think, but not in the negative, not in the way of like, I don't care about people. What stoicism says is essentially, if your friend has more followers than you on Twitter, you should just chill. Like it doesn't really matter. And I think that's, that's what it is for me. And I think there are great ways of applying it to your life because it re- like relieves you from a lot of stress. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There's this, this idea that so many things are external, whether it's the opinions of others or their followers, and that's not really matters. And that's what Stoics hammer over again and again. And one of the cool thing I think about Stoicism is that it's, it's very rare to read texts or listen to quotes that are 2000 plus years old and you can actually figure out when they're like, what I mean is like, it's not that you're trying to say is this 2000 or 2500 years old. You're thinking this dude must have had hell in Brooklyn and wanted to live in Manhattan. And you realize, huh, this person is talking about this and 300 years before Christ. So like, I think that is what I find so interesting about stoicism is that the questions are eternal because it is this question of other people and they're always wrapped. I think that Hidden Albert Camus says, hell is other people. I think the plant wouldn't be very interesting without other people. Other people is also the thing that makes a lot of people anxious. So I think that it's a good way of thinking about it. It's like, how do you relieve the anxiety of other people from you? How do you actually enjoy? Right, right. There's a, of course, there's the strategy that you mentioned earlier. One way to not care about other people is to not care about them in the, in the negative sense at all. Like they don't matter to you. But that's, stoicism is not the view that other people don't matter. Of course, there's a sense. Exactly. Much. 
you have. And I think a lot of people, yeah. like a lot of people have this view on stoicism. They think it means group it. That a lot of like people are saying, oh, you're a stoic. So like you just go to group it out. And it's not about, it's like, it's not about grading it out or anything like that. It's actually about feeling what you should feel and not be distracted by other things. Yeah, that's right. Stoa, one of our main taglines is we want to focus on building resilience and then cultivating virtue. And I think a lot of people come to Stoicism initially for that first bit. Just they hear that it's useful for managing stress or terrible events that have cropped up in their life, which it absolutely is. The focus of the philosophy is on this practical aspect, building resilience, being able to handle whatever life throws at you. But ultimately, the focus is on cultivating virtue or being an excellent person. And that's, we try to cult, you know, promote both of those, both of those ideas at once. So you wrote in a blog post, this idea of emulating a single player game, which I think is related to what we're talking about here. Can you explain like what that means and why it would be a good idea to sort of take on that frame for your life? Yeah. So I think that the way to think about it, I think is this, is that it's, we're obviously every single person around you is a person just as worthy and valuable as you. like, you know, like we're not living in a world where you are looking out that everyone else is actually a robot and, you know, you're the only one with experiences in consciousness. But I think that is sometimes I find it's very useful to just imagine yourself that we're in this big computer game, or I think that maybe a more modern version of that would be that we're in a big simulator. And that every el everyone else in a simulation or computer game is a, what's usually called a non-player, an NPC. So they're really a free person. They're, like, they're a bot, they're a robot, and they're designed really, really well to be around you and be your partner. It might be the person at you know, the supermarket, be anything. And it, sometimes it's really good to think about that because I think we do this really thing where you know, if you're chatting to, if you take a chatbot, like if you talk to a chatbot and that says you're, or says you're ugly, you're just going to shrug it off. Just be like, I mean, this, this is the chatbot saying that I'm ugly. It's, it's, but then if it's another person and you're believing it for that person, it really hurts and you're angry and you go to sleep and, you know, think about this person as an idiot. And the mm -hmm. funny thing is, it's not that hard of an exercise to just kind of imagine everyone, everyone else is and just believe. And I think, that, at least for me, I think there is, some very, very strange, um, or at least counterintuitive truth. Because the weird thing is that we're all living our own lives. Like we're all living in our own universes in a sense. And, and what I mean by that is like, if you meet a person this morning on a sidewalk and that person bumps into you and you know says something angry, you know, you don't know at all what happened to them this morning. Their partner have cancer, their kids are super sick, they're super delayed to this job interview and they're really, really stressed. And, and of course they're doing if they had a post on them that said all those things, you would move out of the way and you would say, hey, can I, you know, pay for the camera? But because people don't, we're always thinking everyone else is an idiot and irritating and, you know, they're, they're standing in front of you in line whistling at Walmart and you're just like, why did this person not show? And the thing is that it's, it's, if you just imagine them to kind of live in their own universes and your universes actually just cross paths, it's kind of easier to just, just take a step back and they're living in their own universe living in mind and they're kind of like no fair character so like if they say i'm an idiot or that I'm like, i should just not care as much and if i mean i'm not saying this is easy i think there are a couple i had one time where I'd like it really i really wasn't to use it but most times of course this you know you you think about it afterwards like, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's related to this idea that the ancient Stoics had that the universe is determined and everything happens because of the way the past was arranged. And it's not, it's let, you know, people aren't these individual, completely free souls acting on each other. Instead, the universe is more like a machine, an organism that has its rules and sort of is playing out the game, as it were. So, on this metaphor, it's you could in a more modern metaphor, I suppose, you know, the universe is a computer program playing out where all these different characters and we're just playing out our roles that's given by the script of the program. And, then, and, I, and actually, on that, actually, I like really, really believe as a person that it's not the case that everything is written. Like, I think that that's another thing, which I think that it's really dangerous. I think sometimes to be very fatalistic about stuff to, to just think I am born in this family or I'm born in this country or this is who I am. I always try to like, whenever I like work with people or like if I invest in them or become their mentor in one way or another, I always try to figure out how they can yield. Like, can they, can they, sometimes an entity or most of the time an entity works against you. You're like, mm-hmm the kind of person that doesn't usually figure this out. I'm always kind of late. But the funny thing is like, we can all redefine this. You could just say, as you said before, Stoics have been really about striving. I think it's interesting because you can actually, in a sense, for your own betterment, you could say, I'm the kind of person that would stop that the person if they're in. And that's right. It's, like you would tell other people, I'm that kind of person, which means that when suddenly something happens, you would stop enough because you define your identity as that. And if you say that you're the kind of person that goes to the gym times a week, exercise a lot makes it a lot easier so for me these like with ultimate habit hacks it, like if you if you tell yourself that you're going to do something it actually makes it easier to do it but also on the on the flip side of that, it's like if you if you think you have a certain identity feel forced the you if somebody mm-hmm. tells you there's a lot of these studies with scores or people of color or differently where People have been told that they're worse at maths as a statistical group, and they actually become worse at maths until somebody tells them, oh, that's kind of a hoax thing. It's like a math study. And then actually the crazy thing is their results goes up. So like, it, it makes no sense, but I think that's a problem. Like we like in this massive filter on our head that like we see the world through. So that's, I think, is that thing I usually think about is you're kind of a clean computer game, even mobs, and you can actually look at your mobs and say, Wait, 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 wait. Why am I just not Like, why seeing opportunities? Like, why just like, instead of thinking this is a risk, why asking myself, what's the opportunity here? And if you start doing that, you start slowly reprogramming yourself with seeing opportunities. And that's like the super cool thing. Like, essentially, you can reprogram might be a too much of a term, but I think that that's the thing I find so exciting. Yeah. And of course, the, the ancient Stoics were fond of saying just because things aren't determined doesn't mean that they're fated. It doesn't mean that your actions no. don't matter because you are a part of the system, right? So every what you do, sure, maybe has in, written into the script, but it still matters and it still affects what's, go, what's going to happen. So you can't just sit yeah. back and wait for things to unfold. Oh, exactly. I, but yeah. I think that's also a normal thing. I think it's very common that people kind of are victims that they kind of... There's some people that tell you a story when something happened to them. And they could have done differently. And the crazy thing is that I think a lot of times, the thing about stoicism though is complicated. I think that there's any kind of systemic racism or ableism or dead reviews or anything makes it much harder. It's very easy to be a like a white 
person man and say that, oh, this is just an attitude question. But the crazy thing is there are certain things that actually you can, like you can tell yourself that I'm not going to be the victim of this. I always think about it in, a, in like a positive way where I've met people that I think are really extraordinary. I meet them like, you know, right away. Like they might literally be on a, in a podcast or they might you know, meet them in a business setting or on an event or whatever. And then I realized this person is just extraordinary. And what I used to do is I used to just think, wow, I really want to figure out a way to work with this person. I just do that rest and hope that our paths would cross, you know, connect them with LinkedIn, whatever, change email addresses, but like the normal. But then I realized my first company is like the best way of doing that is just turning to them and saying, I would love to work with you. I would love to hire you. And this person might just laugh at you and say like, yeah, I agree. Like, I'm fun. I like, I'm in this position right now that... And most people would take that as a no, right? Like it's like this person is right now doing this thing and they're in another country or something. And I think that we shouldn't take no as an answer sometimes. We should just ask her. Like, so, so what I decided to do that is I just, just look at them and say, yeah, that's great. I get it. What would be needed for you to actually dump shit better? And the thing is that now I'm saying, instead of saying you can't do it, because there's like, there's really nothing which is like, you can't. Mm-hmm. It can be that they end up saying, that is like, that's good. But if people are saying, I would need this kind of salary, okay, let's figure out like if that's what we can figure out instead of saying we can't do it. Right. So I think that's also typically one of those things that we usually create these blockers for ourselves and just of saying, okay, what is the rate limit? What's the blocker and how do we go around that blocker? And most of the time you can't go around it, but sometimes you can. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great question. I think we often set up obstacles you know there are different obstacles but we don't we don't name them and sometimes when you name them it's clear that they can be addressed so questions like what's yeah. needed to get you to change or I, i've always liked the form of the question you know what's holding you back from doing this i once heard a salesperson say it on a call it's like oh that's genius i should just use that not just in sales of course but throughout you know my life my interactions with others or thinking about my own goals what's holding me back from actually getting getting to where i need to go and once you yeah. name that sometimes you see that it can be it can be overcome. Yeah, and I think sometimes actually one of the one of the things I do a lot with the companies we invested in is that like I asked them, you know, what would happen if we had two million dollars more in the account? Like tomorrow you open the account, so you're like, oh shit, well, I got two million more, more than I thought. What would you do? Or if somebody says, I can't really do this because I live here, it's like, okay, what what do you do if you wouldn't have this house? And I think that there are a lot of times you don't realize that if you actually really want to move, you can sell the house. Or if you actually really need two million dollars, you couldn't maybe fundraise. But I think we're kind of stuck in a race, a stuck in a situation. And I think I usually love, like I have a couple of these exercises I love doing. Whenever I get on an airplane or when I'm about to fly the day before, I'm going to die on this airplane. And I think it's a great exercise because it makes me really think of. And the other thing I really is that I usually think that the thing that I like right now will burn. So right now, now we just moved to our office six months ago. We love a lot of stuff about it. It's really nice to made by my colleague. And it's a great exercise to ask ourselves, like if this office burned down and we lost it, and if the answer is we would to an extent take office as much as we're in the right office. But if we would say, well, we would actually really want another window there because this is kind of shitty that it's not in this room. Well, then we can ask ourselves, could we get another window in that room? Right, um, right. And I think that just is great by like, if you lose something, it's way easier to just look at it fresh, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can see it, see it anew. So I want to go back to something you said earlier about identity. I think you're exactly right that being able to shift your identity, take on a new one is a superpower of sorts to changing who you want to be. But how do you, how do you do that more concretely? Because I imagine some people might be listening and thinking, well, I'd love to take on the identity of, say, being someone who writes every day, but you know, I can't, 
do I just sit and think about doing that? How do I manage that with my history of wanting to write but not pulling it off? How does that, how does that come together? It's a great question. I think a lot of times, I think we want stuff that we actually don't want. Like, I think that a lot of times, like, many people want to be a published writer, but they don't want to write it. Like, they're, it's, it's like a completely different. So I think that there's so many times where people say, I wish I was a founder of a company where scaling in this space and everything was great. But they actually don't mean that. They, just, they mean, I wish I had been a founder who had built this great company and now I had all the wealth and recognition and everything from it. So I think one of the important things is like, if we ask ourselves, like, oh, I wish I could write every day, then I think it's just like, there are a couple of things and exercises. One is I think I, I find it super useful to just write on a piece of paper and put it on my laptop screen and just say, write every day or whatever it is, like don't see minutes or whatever it is. Like I used to have a colleague that had one of these quotes on her screen and whenever she unfolded her laptop, looked at it, it was great because she paused for a second and read it. And she was like, and I think it's a great thing to, to, to just remind ourselves. And it, it can seem so silly. I, I know other people would like not telling you that you should write every day or like you should not see limits or whatever. But the thing is, it, again, if it works for you, it works for you. That's like the basis of it. If, if, that's really important. And I think that also, one of the things I always try to do is I try to figure out experiments of how to try. So, it, for example, writing every day, I've made three different methods that work for me. Now we're on, tip, on the exact example of writing here, but I think it works. So I used a platform, what's called 750 words, which is a page where you write that saves when you read 750 words. And before that, it doesn't mm -hmm. save. And what happens is that you end up just writing as fast as you can. The first days you write like a good day, but the second day you just write faster and faster. And the third and fourth and fifth, because you have to write every day. Like you get like the sign book and crosses in your calendar every time you, you should break the chain. But after a while, you more or less like text vomit out the text, like the thing from your hands to just get rid of this text and get it out of yourself on the screen. What's so interesting is like you're gone into day five or something. You, you sit down, you open 750 words, you start typing, and then suddenly you see the text being typed in front of you. And it is, of course, you typing. It, it is really like they're quote-unquote unconscious. Like, because you're doing it so quickly and just get it out of your body, like you suddenly start reading stuff before you actually process them. And I think that's a great exercise of just writing more to actually find your unique thoughts. Not necessarily your voice, maybe, because the text actually becomes brutally bad because you're trying to just write itself out. So that's mm -hmm. a really interesting exercise I found really good. The other thing I found is like, I pen in what's it called, a fountain book. The thing is, fountain pens are really great because fountain pens are extremely shitty at writing fast. Like you cannot write fast with fountain. It's like, it's completely, first of all, it's hard to actually write fast. And secondly, you can't read anything to write, write fast. So it's interesting, like just taking a book, get a cafe or getting something away where I'm not sitting in front of my computer or phone or anything, so I can just back then. Write the headline of the thing which I was on my mind. And I would just sit and ponder and write. But now I write extremely slowly because like I can't write fast. And I find those thoughts are exactly the opposite of the 750 words thoughts. Like they come out I've been thinking of this for quite a lot of time and I see the structure coming out of it. So I think that's a very, very interesting format for me. Then the other thing for me is keeping like a list of small things to write about. So like I usually if something just hits me, I'm like, why do people do this? I just make blog. And like what I've found there is one of the amazing things is trying to gather problems. So I tell this to a lot of entrepreneurs, but I tell it to a lot of authors as well and, and, and bloggers. It's what's great if somebody says next to you, why on earth is like, are people anxious about what people say on Twitter or whatever? Like, it, I don't know, like that's maybe too obvious example, but people say something where you just go, or like, why do people care if they're actually idiots? 
And then like you read, you hear this thing, and it's like you think, I care why there are aliens. But again, it's not obvious why people care about aliens. And then you just write down, you just write a whole piece for yourself and think about it and actually mm-hmm. talk to people. And I think some more interesting blog posts written, I think I've only published like 5% of the things I've written. A lot of the things I've written, I end up having a thing where it's end up being conversations with people and I end up writing a blog post and send them the draft of the blog post and ask them to comment it and forth. It got the argument better. And the thing I find about writing in particular is writing is an amazing way of carrying your own mind to actually figure out what to actually need. And so I think that's, uh, for me, that's a great method. So the methods there are like write extremely fast, write extremely slow, and then gather different topics to write about. And the complete orthogonal to those three, which is not about writing, is surround yourself by people who are writing. I think that that's really, I think one of the best tips I always find is that a lot of people don't do this because a lot of people surround themselves by people who would say that they're impressed by this person writing because they want to be seen. They think it's amazing where they're like, oh, other people are saying, wow, you're so great, you're writing. But the thing is, you really don't. You want to be around other people that you're saying, I'm writing about this thing, I'm thinking about this thing. And they're like, oh, interesting. Can we talk about the process? Can we talk about the post and everything? And actually, it's, it's really, really amazing to have those conversations and be inspired by them. So to start here, if you're comparing yourselves to a person that has more views than you on Instagram, it's going to be really irritating. But if instead, if you're saying it's super inspiring, figure out how they're doing it and think. So I do that a lot. Actually, just really awesome, great blog posts. Actually figure out what and what is awesome. Yeah, I like how we, we got a, a bonus take on how to actually become a better writer or how to become a writer at all. That's, that's good. It was an example, of course. So like you can't do yeah. this for everything, but I think it is... Uh, it is, and then I think that the top thing of all, which we said previously as well, is actually if you tell people, like, I really want to write more, that helps massively. Like, it helps so much. If you start telling people, like, my goal this year is I'm going to try to write one blog post a month that I'm really pleased with. And so, like, I'm going to probably write 30, 40 shitty blog posts. Is it okay if I send you shitty posts? The, the thing is that these people will ask after it, oh, like, are you writing something interesting now? And this, is, I think, is so interesting about the kind of the dichotomy of stoicism is that. Now you're stressed by other people, right? Like these people are asking you if you've written anything. This is actually the thing you want to get rid of. But the thing is that you have created an all-player character in your game, this bot that you've asked to remind you to write more. And every time it does it, you feel like, thanks, that's great. You, you don't get pissed off on your phone when your reminder comes up and it says like buy groceries or, you know, don't forget to renew the lease or whatever. You're not like, oh, I've got a reminder app. Like you, you should be like, oh, great, thanks. That's amazing of this person to do it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's the meme of you shouldn't care what people think, which to some extent is useful for many people to hear. But on the flip side, of course, you should care what people think when they are people you admire or when they are good at a specific domain. So in the example you just gave, it's useful to care what people think when they're the sort of person you, whose bat working assumption is you're the sort of person who keeps their agreements, you care about being a good writer. So I'll ask you about that, about that next time. But I think it's so fascinating that most people's nightmares are really, about, I mean, nightmares, but I mean, like things that are really excited about is being around other people in an embarrassing situation, like right. coming to work and realizing that you're not wearing pants or sitting next to a person on the subway, which is really stellarly beautiful. And you realize you have a boogie in your nose. Like all of those things are like super crazy anxiety creating, but most of those situations you would never, ever in your life meet these people like that. Like, obviously, the people at work, you're going to meet them tomorrow and, like, they're going to, you know, think it's very funny you didn't wear it. But I think there's so many times, like, we make up these 
it's really horrible to talk in front of people. But if you're never going to meet the people again, does it matter? And I, I, like, I'm not saying it's easy, but it is interesting to ask ourselves sometimes, why do I feel anxiety? Yeah, yeah. As of course, as Seneca said, we suffer more often in imagination than than reality, and that's certainly, certainly exactly. true, especially that's when it comes exactly to other people. But I think that's uh, exactly the thing is I think that fear is essentially you are imagining a bad future and you're being excited for that now, and that is like there are two sides of this argument. One is that it's really bad because you're now to go sleep and you're already afraid of something and you know that it's kind of meaningless. But the other argument of this, like I always think about this when I was building my first company. I was always like panic stressed to our management group meetings, like handed off kids and whatever, and you know, got to the meeting, panting and like being bicycled through a snowy city or something. And I finally got there and I was one minute late and I ran in and I was like, and then I realized, oh, I'm the first person here. And then I got really irritated a couple of times, but then I suddenly realized the people who are anxious about being late are the people that are, that's, those are the ones that are, if I want to be a person who is on time. I will just have to cope with the fact that I'm going to be anxious that I'm late. The day I'm relaxed about it, that's the day I'm late. So the, and we can really apply that to everything. I think a lot of people look at parents and they say, oh, why are you so anxious about your kids, this and that? Anxiety and fear in parents is the fact that you really care about your kids. Right? Like you, mm -hmm. you're worried that something happened to them. If you would be completely you know, relaxed about your kids, and well, you actually don't care. So it is like you should be a bit, you should be a bit anxious in a strange way. Yeah, I think you know one idea about say anxiety in particular from the evolutionary standpoint is that to some extent anxiety is going to be adaptive. You know, as you said, it's the kid who is at least somewhat anxious about getting on the ladder who is you know not going to fall as opposed to the kid who's completely reckless. And of course, most virtues are mean. So instead of being completely reckless or completely timid, you want to be prudent. And that often I think just means accepting feelings of that feelings that might be negative, whether it's anxiety or uh, what have you, and noting that those those actually do serve a useful purpose in many cases. Yeah, and actually on that, I think that also in our answer back to your previous questions about identity, if you say you want to be a writer, I think that another thing I usually think about is actually if you want to be something emotionally. So if you say like, I want to be more brave, or, um, I find it fairly useful to just imagine yourself a person. Like you just, you are someone else. Like I think that you can just ask yourself, it's like, okay, you have this friend, Thomas, who's like completely crazy and just like says stuff to people and he shouldn't, he should just shut up slightly more. Sometimes it's great that Thomas is saying this. And I think we can actually use this in this computer game we're in. You can actually suck in part of Thomas into your brain and you can say, okay, 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 okay. I'm going to be Thomas now. And you can say to the people, hey, I'm really sorry, but this isn't cut it. Like, I'm really, really sorry. I don't want to be the douchebag who says this is bad, but this actually is really bad. And people look at you like, what, what, what got into you? And the truth is like Thomas could, like, it's just like you actually wielded Thomas identity, put it in yourself and then used it in this situation. And I think we can do that a lot more. I think it's harder to do that over time because a lot of fears and depressions and stresses are actually you not being true to yourself. So the more you're actually trying to be people you're not, the delta between your inner and your outer personalities become harder and harder. And then you get very, very anxious and stressed. Right. But the thing is that you can actually use it. Like you can actually think, what would I do? I think about this at a party, this is like 20 years ago now, but I introduced a friend of mine, Stefan, and I said to the people around me, like, hey, this is Stefan. This is definitely one of my like more funny friends. He's like an amazing, like super hilarious person. And this guy, like, you know, grabbed me on the shoulder. So like, please never introduce me. Like that. And I was like, whoa, sorry. Like, I really meant it. You're really funny. And he said, no, but now I have to be like crazy funny here. 
like I have to actually consciously think am I being funny all now? Because you can't even introduce me as the funny person. And I never thought about it. I realized, oh my God, I have now forced an identity upon you. And of course, we can do that kind of but we can also do it ourselves. You can actually tell yourself, it would be super funny tonight. I'm really going to. And then you can just say, you imagine yourself another person saying, what would Stefan do? He would actually be more loose and more relaxed. And then I'm going to. Yeah, we have at Stoa, we have a practice called the contemplation of the sage, which comes from a French philosopher named Pierre Hadot. And he got it from the ancient Stoics. And many people have systematized different practices of this sort. It's you know an ancient tradition, but it imagines involving involves imagining a sage, someone who you admire, seeing them observe you, or perhaps imagining them giving advice to you, or at the next level, imagining they took your spot and acted throughout your life, and yeah. then act, imagine yourself doing the very same actions. And I think that can help people become sort of expand their the possibility set that's initially available to them. You can imagine someone else do it, and you can be that same person that do it as well. And then I think, I think here, like sometimes when we do these identity shifts, one of the best ways I find is you preempt the thing you're going to say in a way that people understand what you're going to say now is out of the ordinary and it's not necessarily. So if you're, if you're usually a timid person and now you're going to say that slightly irritating thing and people usually never hear that anything but the very nice words from you, you can use saying, like, I'm really sorry what I'm about to say. Or this might come out really brutal. And I think that the thing is that when you say that, people brace themselves and you're probably not going to say anything which is that bad, but it really helps people to be like ready. For I think what really surprises people is like when people flip identity and they don't give you like a big of a warning. Mm -hmm. You can even say, I don't even feel myself saying this, but then people are like, it's going to make it a lot easier for them to accept what you're just saying. Yeah, there's a, a useful kind of vulnerability in that as well, I think, that people people respect. One thought I have on the identity aspect is I think one mistake that many people make, and I'm curious to get your view on this, is they take on an identity and it's in a sense too ambitious. You know, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to write, you know, twice, once in the morning, once in the evening, and they'll go from that, from not writing at all to this identity like this. And then of course they'll set some goal and like the one I, I just mentioned and fail at some point. And now they have the history of saying that they are this person and not living up to that agreement. And if you do that too often, there is this break between, I think, what you say you'll do and what you end up doing that causes a, a lack, a serious lack of self-trust that, that can occur. I think that's a really great point. I think that I used to do this thing before I got kids. I had like nine months manias. I, I call them temporary obsessions. And I try to figure out a thing that I want to spend nine months on, a lot of time on it. And actually both practices and read on it, read up on it, and actually surround myself in it so many different ways. And like, this could be anything. This was like at a period 20 years ago in my life, it was barefoot running. I was just like, I read everything you could read on barefoot running. I li listened to everything, saw the YouTube videos, ran barefoot, like went to camps, like did everything. And it was really great. And I think it was, and then I told myself, I'm going to do this for nine months. So the point is like, I'm going to quit the nine months. I'm not, and I, and like, I need to ask, whoa, you're running like this. And, that. and I was like, yeah, for nine months, I'm going to run. That's what it's going to be. And then I'm going to, and it was great because like, it really time boxed it for me, which means that I went out month seven, I was running really long distances and like, it was like too far actually for doing barefoot. Like I couldn't kind of like think about it and say, it's another 40 days. It's another 40 days. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was really good. And then there's some of these habits where I took the thing I did for nine months and then I did like a 10th of it continuously. 
So like if it was, for example, I'm going to do mindfulness every day, and I was like, I'm going to do one hour mindfulness every day. I'm going to do all these practices. I'm going to read all this, this. I'm going to listen to all these things. And then afterwards, I'm like, okay, what is the distilled version of this? The distilled version is that I do 15 minutes mindfulness. Every time I get to work, I like bike in a stand, get up, get close the door, or like get into the bathroom, whatever. And I sit down and do 15 minutes mindfulness. It is like a super watered down distilled version of the obsession. But the crazy thing is because I've done this obsession for nine months, like, like I lock into so quickly, like my reflex are there. I know exactly what's going to happen. So it's like, it's so powerful. And there was one time when I felt I'm going to do brick and bickering yoga. So one of these obsessions. So I started this thing where I'm going to read out brick and bickering yoga. Bickering yoga is essentially a peculiar kind of yoga in a fairly warm room. And it is like a large group of people. And it is semi almost religious, like how people act. Like in the dressing room afterwards, like when you're standing there, people are just crying sometimes and people saying like, I can't get to work if I've done this or like, it's so amazing. So like, you understand that it is like a big thing when people do it. And of course it is like, you're straining yourself in very high temperatures. Like it kind of feels like you just got And so I got into this thing and I started like reading up on it and doing it many times a week. And then one person, some health practitioner I worked with for another thing said to me that like, this is really bad for your kidneys. Like it's really, really bad for you. Like you're, you're, and you're laboring your kidneys. Like you're using so much water and you're pumping in water constantly. Like you, you have to like eat better. Like you have to figure out salts, da, 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 da. And then I was like, what? And then essentially I started to be turned. This is like week four or something in this process. Mm-hmm. And, they, and then they suddenly kind of like, let's actually look. And instead of going in this with like this optimistic, I'm going to hack and understand and learn Bikram yoga, let's look at it with the skeptic's eyes. And it was interesting. So, so then, of course, what happened first is I read an article about the creator of Bikram Yoga and how he's like a fairly abusive person. And then I got super negative about it. And it was interesting because then I had to, five now, I have to ask myself, you want to quit this thing? Because I'm supposed to, I meant to have told myself I'm going to design this. I've already started writing about it, like I'm not for anyone else, but I've like really planned it. And then I just looked at it and it was really good because I paused and I asked myself, like, quitting is great. Like, it's really important to, do, to just look at something and say, quitting this thing and it like and it just recently released in a book about quitting and i think that has a really really simple but very good point which says whenever you're sure that you should quit you know you quit too late. like if you have enough data that you should quit you will always quit too late because then like you know an hour ago a day ago a month ago or whatever you can't have enough data to kind of gut feeling say i'm not good at this thing so it's one of those things where I think that we have to just learn that we need to quit with our gut. And it's hard, especially if you're pinned your identity to, to say like, I'm the person who's going to do Bikram yoga for nine months and write this blog to people. A lot of people ask me after a couple of weeks, like, are you still doing Bikram yoga? And I was like, no, I quit it. Like I just opened it and I felt it was super unhealthy. And then friends who were like, we're Bikram yoga friends who are like, what? Where, like, are you doing people on Bikram yoga? And I was like, no, 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 sorry. It's just not for me. I, I, like, I'm, like it's, it's for you. Again, back to the open character, it's like, it works for you in your universe. Like you love it. It's great for you. I don't want to like, you know, control you. It doesn't work for me in my universe. I don't want it. Hi everyone. This is Michael Trombley. Thanks for listening to Stoa Conversations. We're a new podcast. We're getting started. We're building episode by episode. So I wanted to just give a quick shout out and say that any like review or referral that you can provide really goes a long way to helping the show. Quitting is, a, is an important and tricky, tricky issue. Like, of course, in sense, it's in some cases, it's mandatory to quit because if you're working on a problem that is insolvable or you realize that the goal you first thought was worth achieving is actually immoral or something of this sort, 
you know, there are memoirs of communists coming to change their mind. And that must be such a difficult thing to do if you built, you know, the past 20 years of your life on this political identity uh, and then realize that you are mistaken. But it's something that many people have to do. But of course, on the flip side, you have examples of people who quit too early or quit too often, pick up one thing, quit it, and it's the next. So it's an absolute thing. It is, it, is, it is also really fascinating. I think that sometimes I feel like it's the bad, it's the old adage, like, you know, trying to remember what it is now, but it's about, you know, people's beliefs and their salaries. I'm trying to verbatim remember exactly what it is, but it's something about like, the point is like, if somebody's salary is dependent on believing something, they will believe it a lot more. Now I suddenly forgot exactly the quote. But you know, every time you talk to an expert and you're like, okay, you did your PhD or like you're a professor in this, in this subject and like you worked with this for 40 years. If this turns out to be not true, you're kind of a very strange professor. Like you're now a professor in an area which is not true. So I think it's really hard, right? You have not only like a vested belief, but you actually have a lot of your identity tied to it. But I think that I know some people who actually did exactly that. They, a friend of mine is a longevity researcher. He was super into one part of longevity. He does all their longevity research. He's like amazing in it. And then one day he essentially just looks at all these data and all the things they have that are super expensive experiments and just realizes that I think that there's a much easier way. And I think I get it. And the problem, the reason nobody spends money on it is that it's generic and it's impossible to pay, patent. And then essentially he just kind of left the whole thing he was doing and he didn't move outside longevity. He's still in longevity, but now he's working on doing it in a very, very cheap and simple way. And the funny thing is, of course, it's going to affect the world in a much better way because he's continuing it. It, much more accessible, but when he goes for grants, funding, everybody's like, oh, it's not that like cutting edge. It's not that different, but he's just selling them. I spent 20 years in this. This is the best, I, I promise you. And sometimes people actually, I would say most people actually do even more because they realize he actually has a vested interest in the other method, but he's mm -hmm. not going for that simpler one, which most people have a lot of data on, but people don't go for it because you can't get paid. I mean, you can't get paid for the research, but you can't get paid for actually making, making it. Right, right. Moving to a related topic, what do you think are some important misconceptions people have about running companies? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that one of the most common misconceptions is that like a company is kind of like, it is such a multifaceted thing. It's kind of like, if you ask somebody, how do you live a good life? The question, like nobody can answer that question. People have to like, what life are you to live? Like, you know, what do you mean? Who are you and what is life and what is good? Like you, it becomes very like, quick definition conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that many very common misconception is when people are saying I'm running a company or running a startup, they actually think they're like, they, they think it's a startup and they, they say that like either they use the word startup or company interchangeably and they really mean that. But I really find that for me, at least there are three kinds of companies or three kinds of labels. So you have lifestyle companies, you have corporation companies and you have conventional companies. And these are completely different. Like they're, they have different goals. They have different limiter, like they're everything different. And they have some overlap, which is that all are probably incorporated. <laughs> They're probably like legal entities that look similar, but everything about them is actually different. And one of the misconceptions is that when we're ever comparing ourselves or reading or getting advice, we're not telling people that I'm building a lifestyle or I'm building a corporation company or whatever. They were actually, you're, you're not telling people what you mean by a good life. So for me, a life, a lifestyle company is that the goal is to have a good life. In, like that's the point of it. Like you have a friend right now who runs a small software development firm. There are three people They have a really nice office. You know, they work really hard during weeks. They're, you know, they're, they're off in the weekends. They go skiing and blah, blah, blah. And somebody's like, oh, you should raise money. You should do this and that. They're like, no, like don't, like don't mess up. They have, they're building a lifestyle company. It's great. They're actually having a great time. That's their goal. 
their goal is actually people to go skiing and have weekends and talk about stuff that are not about this company. That's the point of their company. They could, you know, only hire friends of theirs instead of hire somebody who the best salesperson in the world that can drive sales, but who they don't actually like. Instead of saying, mm-hmm. no, I'm just going to work with people I really love. And I know that sometimes more ambitious people might drive it further, but I would prefer working with people I really love. And you have corporations and corporations is designed to scale, to make money and actually needs to all to regain control. Like you, you're designing this because you want to control it. And I think that you can look at like, essentially you're building a small empire and you could look at this depending on what kind of business. So like it's a person who owns a McDonald's or, or anything or a pizza chain or, or an apartments or anything like you're not trying to, you're, you're trying to scale it, but you want to scale it with control. Like you want to design this everything point. You're going to be top of this pyramid. And the difference between this and the lifestyle company is that you want to make it bigger all. But you don't even want to raise money for it, actually, because if you raise money, you lose control of it. And that's like probably not true. And, and then the last one is the exponential companies. That is actually what most of us actually mean when we say startup. An exponential is that, quoting someone else here, but essentially like you're jumping with, with a box. You're, you're telling people that you're going to open this box, build an airplane and learn how to fly it. You know that this is impossible when you're starting. Like you're starting at the end saying, I think we will all communicate on our mobile phones with a kind of SMS format, which are 140 characters, and we're going to tell each other what we add for breakfast. It feels like, like I usually tell people when they tell me their ideas and say, I'm really afraid about doing it. I usually tell them that when you start a startup, you're fail. You're trying to un, like you're trying to prove that you can update other people with 140 characters about what you for breakfast is a great. Like there's no risk in you failing this at all. You're starting at a low point. But I mean, those companies, they need to raise money so they can jump clear. And that's what they're designed for. And so the point here is like, people ask what should I do with my company or I'm looking for a board or I'm raising money or whatever. They should try to ask themselves is which one of these three companies are you trying to build? And then they also need to ask themselves if to your question about the amount of money you said, do you actually want to run this company? Like a friend of mine is a ballet dancer and 10 years ago, I saw her toes and like her toes looked like horrible. Like, I mean, horrible to the degree where I, I was, I thought somebody was really hurting her and not herself. I thought a third party was oh, like crushing her toes with a hammer. And I saw her toes like, what the, sorry, what's going on? And he said, yeah, that's the life of a ballet dancer. And I said, no, but seriously, you, you, you can't do this. Like you're doing it wrong. And she was like, no, no, no. Sadly, this is not the wrong. This is actually how biodancing looks like on the inside. And I asked her, like, but there must be something you can do or whatever. And then she just told me, like, this is what world class dancing looks like. It is just like, and then she interrogated me and said, how many times have you pinged you on a Sunday and said, do you want to go for coffee? And you're into some topic about shipping some software or updating something, right? And you just don't want to go for coffee with me. And you're doing this the same. You're torturing yourself to achieve your goal. And I really realized that it's like, there's a very big difference of like, if you want to play soccer with your friends, or if you want to play in the little league and actually like, you know, you know, it's going to be fun. You play a lot. Or if you actually want to build the world, those three things, all a spherical object you're kicking on is that commonality, but the people, and I think most people forget to ask themselves, who am I? What do I want to do? And therefore, which of these three do I want to build? And then be true to themselves and just say, I really want to build a lifestyle company with three of my friends. And my goal is to be able to have a small office in Brooklyn and we're going to enjoy this and we're going to have a great view. 
and we're going to like our ultimate goal is to be able to have a barista downstairs where we have like we just walk down to get a coffee. That's our ultimate goal. That's where we're. Writing. That's great. Like so, many people will ask them, "Well, you have so much money, you could write money or whatever." It's like that's not their goals. Yeah, yeah, it's a that's a great point. It's always important to know oneself and know what you're doing and not be uh, distracted by these really sort of opaque abstractions. Like the term, the term startup, as you said, gets applied to all these different projects just because startups are cool, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and the thing is, they're actually not. They're actually not. Like what is really, really cool. I think that we've all been in a situation where somebody is really, really brave and that is absurdly cool. Like my daughter had this thing happening to her a couple of years ago. My daughter is fairly short and she went to the soccer pitch in school and then one kid starting bullying her for real, but a bit like calling her shorty and everything. And then a kid in her class who's fairly tall, who's not a close friend with her at all, like just like a random dude in her class, just walked up to this person and said, what are you doing? Like, why are you like pestering her on how tall she is? You're not that tall. Like, just like, come on, like you should really chill this. And this guy is like, you know, one of the big guys in school in his class. And he has like, I don't know, he's not friends or anything, but he was just like, I'm not going to put up with this thing. And I so admire that. Like, it's so cool that he just feel like I'm not going to put up with somebody bullying someone else, even if I'm with our friends or anything. I just like, why would anybody bully anybody? And I think that that's the thing is like, it's not cool to build a startup. It's not cool to be anything. It's really cool to be you and actually stand up for stuff. That is immensely. Mm -hmm. Yep. So how do you think about role models? You know, many people find it useful to look up to a specific person, whether they're a contemporary person, past, or even fictional to sort of inspire them or provide guidance for their life. How do you, how do you think about that general yeah. practice? I think it's, I think it's like, it is really great because you can use it to wield your identity. Like that's like, that's a great aspect of it. But I think the dangerous thing is when most people say, who's your idols or who's your role model? I think we try to take, we try to take all aspects and, or sorry, we're not actually trying to take all aspects of them. Sorry, is what I mean. So like, for example, if people say, Elon Musk is my role model, he's like super intelligent. The thing is, Elon Musk is obviously super intelligent. Like it's very hard to doubt that. But I think there are very few people who would like to fully be Elon Musk, like to actually have all the attributes of Elon Musk. Like, I actually don't think it's very comfortable. Like, he, there's a reason that he tweets stuff that are very random and gets into strange situations. But what people mean is like, I want to pick this one characteristic of Elon Musk. That's the one I want. And then people say, I love Scott McKenzie and what she's done and empowering people so like Jeff Bezos, a previous wife, and what she's doing about how she's donating. Because the thing is like, most of us don't know that much about Scott McKenzie. So like, if I say, I wish I was Scott McKenzie, the thing is like, no, 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 no. You wish you are the picture that you have in your mind of Scott McKenzie. That's actually what you mean. And I think that's, it's really dangerous to that. It's because I think most of the time that means that we feel very, because we're saying, I wish I could do this, but it's like, well, like, I don't, I don't think you know that what that means is you would have all these other attributes or you would sacrifice all these other things in your life. So I think that's, that's like a complicated thing. It's like, and I used to have role models when I was a kid, but then the, the more I understood about these people or the more I actually met people in person, the more I was like put down and just like let down by that. I just felt sad. It's like, oh, this person wasn't good. And, and I really started shifting and realizing that I, I genuinely honestly believe that we all are multiple persons. Like, I really believe that most people have very, very fragmented personalities. And you, the thing you call you, is the sum of parts for you that are actually just jostling for control and trying to kind of tell you what, quote unquote, you want to do. And I think 
but we've all had a situation where like you feel like you want to go to the party, but you also feel like you're too tired and you want to do this. And then you end up saying, part of me wants to go. And I actually do truly feel part of you, like literally part of you wants to go. Like one, but you're an emerging property of all of these people inside you. So I think that's it segues me into really thinking about what a role model is, is me thinking about one of my personalities and trying to adopt this other role model into my kind of choir of personalities and trying to kind of have that person to be part of the course and just say, I'm going to try to be slightly more good and wield this personality slightly, slightly more and just see if that. And I think that, that for me helps me add. And I think that's so role models are, and I think I have one more comment about it. There's so many people that look at somebody who is successful or seems to be successful and seems to know what they're doing. And the thing is that, so if you just take everybody's whatever, who won the Nobel Prize or who, you know, who are super wealthy or who are the Super Bowl players, whatever it is, we all believe that the ones that are the top five in each category, they, they're on top of shit. But, but they're not. The thing is that it's, I think that, but the reason you would think that is you think that life is a sorting mechanism where the best people have now floated to the top like cream and they obviously know what they're doing. And I think there are two things here. One is I think that they had one characteristic, which is one time very useful. Like Bill Gates grew up with computers just coming, you know, to life when he can have access to it that he was greatly in early and spent time on it. Obviously great, you know, Bill Gates is super smart, but also it's so much time and randomness around it. And the other thing is like, so it's very stochastic. And it's very hard for people to understand that if you end up meeting Larry Page or whoever it is, you're going to realize that just because he has, I don't know, 10,000 times as much money as you have, he is probably not like even double as smart as you are. And he's probably not twice as nice to his friend or whatever. And the problem is that we do believe the market, quote unquote market, is a system of sorting, but it's not. It is very, very random. And I think that it's so hard. So I think that a lot of times, I think that it is like, we should realize we're like, we're essentially playing a poker game. And then you're just like, instead we should just be the poker game. You, you fold hands and move on and learn. The problem when you're playing life is that life is not a three minute game where you look at your two first cards and fold. Life is the thing that you've been given these cards and the game is very, very long. So like, it's hard for you to just say, I'm going to fold and start a new one. But the same, I think that you can look at what other people are doing during your life and say, hmm, I should play more like that or more like this, but you have cards being, you know, dealt. So like, if you say, I wish I was like Bill Gates, you probably don't mean that actually. You probably don't wish when you're born when Bill Gates was born and, and did what he was when his kid and does what he does now. You just want to have written that book. You essentially say, I wish I'd written. Yeah. Yeah. I think the important upshot that I'm taking away from what you're saying is that you want to be laser focused if you're using a role model type approach on what specific attributes you value in the other person and what that concretely looks like in their life and not be distracted by the outcomes of what, or what you think are the outcomes of say someone's work ethic. If you admire someone's worth ethic, then just focus on that, not just your desire to say, have an exceptionally successful company or exactly. uh, book. And then also, plus, plus also, also just like acknowledging that if you're admiring a person who does X, you have to, to do that thing. You actually have to take the other part. There is no, there is no amazing basketball player who, you know, were partying in college every, every night. 
that was a choice. Like, like when I interview people, I'm always trying to figure out, I want to ask them for something they sacrifice. And I feel like most say I don't sacrifice anything. Like I do everything I can and want and everything. I don't think that's true. I think we all try to, we all sacrifice something for something else. We might sacrifice not getting where we want because we want to have a comfortable life or we want to, we sacrifice not, you know, not reading fiction because we don't have the time or something. I think we all mm-hmm. sacrifice stuff. And I think it's a good thing to ask yourself, what am I sacrificing and what for? And usually it's really good stuff. It's really good reasons. I mean, you're suffering. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been an excellent conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Is there anything else it's- you'd like to add? No, I think that, I mean, I think like there are stuff on my blog that I've written and try to think about a lot of these things. I think my blog is very hard to kind of navigate. You just have to scroll and scroll and scroll. I for sure probably spend time on sorting it or something. The thing is I'm writing the blog for myself. Like I'm essentially writing it so that I would read it later. I actually, before this interview, when you ping me about this quote I said about life is a single player game, I reread my old blog post and it was so perfect because not the blog post, but the feeling. Because when I reread it, I looked at something I wrote, I don't know if it was 10 years ago, and Hampus in 2013 advised Hampus in 2023 on stuff that was really good. I read this and I was like, this is great advice. Thank you very much, Hampus 2013. I wish somebody would have told me earlier. And I read as well, somebody did. Like, you know, somebody did tell me this 2013. I told me this 2013. So I think it's a really interesting thing. Like, so many times when you're writing a thing, I think the best target group is always writing it for yourself in the future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com and please get in touch with us at stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.